This is First Edition. I'm Jeff O'Neill. On this episode, we kick off with a discussion of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, Vanessa Diaz, and Kelly Jensen of Book Riot. Join me to talk about that in anticipation of the new movie coming out. We also have Professor Erica Williams talking about Nella Larson, um, one of my favorite authors. Going to tell you a little bit about her and her work. Um, new book coming out from Doubleday, The Complete Fiction of Nella Larson, with Professor Williams doing an introduction. And also Professor Sarah Hart talking to me, nerding out with me about math and literature uh, on the occasion of her new book that just came out called Once Upon a Prime. Really good episode. Stick around. Let's go. All right. Up first, I've uh, wrangled some other book read editors, Kelly Jensen, Vanessa Diaz, to talk with me about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by the great Judy Bloom in advance of the movie coming out. We're going to talk about all that stuff. Uh, but before we get going, I want to talk about our own relationship to the book, and I think that gets us into it a little bit in a, in a bigger way. Kelly, let's start with you. What was your relationship to this book before you know I we talked about rereading it? So I read this, definitely read this in middle school. When I went through a phase, I think I read every Judy Bloom book I can get my hands on in part because at that time like YA was just really starting to hit that golden age. Mm -hmm. I was in high school like before libraries had YA sections or bookstores had YA sections and um, I, I picked up Judy Bloom. I can't remember what the first book of hers was that I read but I went through every single one of them. And what I remember most vividly about reading this book is the scene where uh, she, the main character, is using her first pad. And at the time, I had an old copy of the book. Oh. And she was using oh, yes. a sanitary belt. And I had no idea what this was, but it terrified me. Mm -hmm. um, like, why would, what? Like, what is this? You know, and this <laughs> is the days before the internet where you would like yep. not go search for that kind of thing. Um, beyond that, like, this is not one that particularly stuck with me. Okay. There are certain phrases that have followed me through, um, you know, or references that I get from the book, but forever, her uh, first sex book, uh, like sex for the first time, not first sex book. Um, <laughs> just to clarify that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one is one that I have read multiple times okay. in multiple different contexts. Um, and then, yeah, I got to revisit it now, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit. But it, it certainly struck me how this is sort of a quintessential middle grade novel. Right. And I'm not as closely attuned to the fine distinctions. There's not some fine distinction between middle grade chapter books. Why I do want to hear about that in a minute um, as well. Vanessa, how about mm -hmm. you? What was your relationship to this book, you know, up to and including, you know, rereading it uh, for this? Yeah, mine is kind of funny, uh, at least well, to me now. So at the tender age of nine, I sustained an injury. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, it was on like the playground, something happened, whatever, I fell and when I fell, I happened to be near a tetherball pole. It hit me in the jaw. I swear this is related. It did damage to my pituitary gland, which we didn't know at the time. We just knew that like something was going on. And then like two weeks later, why is Vanessa going through like a whirlwind of things that we can't explain? Uh, I was growing all the things. And then guess who got her mm -hmm. like first period all at the age of nine within like a span of weeks. And then that's when we discovered oh. that it was because of this pituitary gland. Um, I'm in Catholic school. Ooh. I'm in like third grade, third, third, fourth. And 
I have so many questions because I'm going through a gajillion things that I don't know how to like explain or like ask for. And I'm not getting, you know, any kind of sex education class in the old Catholic school at age three. So long story short, I knew from reading other Julie Bloom books that I had seen this book called Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And I was like, well, clearly I can read this because it has God in it. Like, and then getting told by my teacher, (laughs) no, we don't read that book. And I was like, well, now I'm going to check it out. But it was in the library? library. It was in the library, but she said not to read it. Yes. So, like, I didn't understand why it was in the school library if I wasn't allowed to read it. So instead, I went, you know, my mom would take me to the, like, public library all the time. So I snuck it inside another book, like, not very successfully, mind you. But anyway, and, like, my mom wasn't really, she was paying attention to what I was reading, but wasn't really concerned that I was out here reading something that I wasn't supposed to. So anyway, I took the book home read it i don't know that it actually helped i too was like i have to wear a belt what does that mean like i had a very old copy of the book and it was a very interesting like six to eight weeks uh and i don't really think i got clarification on a lot of those things until two years later but that is literally why i picked up this book at that age because i was like hating life and needed somebody to try to explain this to me (laughs) so that's how we got here wow i mean i guess that's that's a specific and clear case for why the book is important as you can maybe get actually in a, in a sort of a yes. microcosm mm-hmm. way like no one else was going to tell you and it was there and it was available and um maybe maybe a helpful um antidote to a lot of the discourse that goes now about putting books in for those with ears to listen my own experience um i'm a fella uh and i was even then when i was 12 i think i was 11 when i read this book um and i read basically everything that was in my school library up into up to and including the last of the mohegans when i was in sixth grade because there was nothing else left to read there and it wasn't one of those situations but i saw the girls in my class reading this book and kind of looking at each other about it if you know what i'm saying like there was something going on with this of course i wanted to know Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure this is where i found out about the existence of playboy i think i think it must have been i don't think i would have (laughs) known about playboy before this, and so that was interesting to me. The stuff about um, menstruation and belts was like talking about Mars exploration to me at this point. I had no sex sure. education to my knowledge <laughs> at this point. I didn't know yeah. what that was. I had some, I mean, I had a sense of like the human reproductive cycle, but the but the inner mysteries of it at that point to me were completely opaque. Um, and it really was the Girls are worried about stuff, too. I mean, that was my big takeaway from this book, especially. They're worried about stuff, too, because, you know, as sometimes happens, it felt like a foreign country. Like, I had friends. I went to Sunday school. I went to school. But I didn't have girls over to my house and talking like I did with my friends who were boys. And I think that was the thing that really struck me. It's like, you know, it's the other side of the same thing. You know, there's, there's boy characters here who get represented in different ways. And they have their own feelings and expectations, too, that the book reveals. But that's that's a journey for Margaret as well. Um, so mm-hmm. th- that was kind of my experience of it as well. When So when you all were reading it, did you have a sense of it as being like an important book? Because I'm the oldest of us here. Even by, let's see, this would have been 89. The book had already been out almost 20 years by the time I'm 20 it years? It had been yeah. out even longer by the, yeah, it was 1970. <sighs> by the time you guys were picking it up, it had been out even longer. So like... Did you think of it as like a classic, like a oh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Wizard of Oz, or did it still was your sense of it that it was still sort of contemporary by the time you got your hands on it? 
So I think a little of A and a little of B. Okay. My mom was good about letting me read whatever I wanted to read. And um, like you, Jeff, like I read everything. So there were times where she would try to recommend books to me that Mm. like she read growing up. Um, My mom would have been, um, this came out in 70. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. She would have been at the, at the right, at the right age to be reading it then. And I remember her recommending Judy Bloom books to me, um, along with Go Ask Alice, but that's a whole other story. There's <laughs> another podcast. Um, we have to do a whole series. There's a podcast. Another yeah. podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, I saw it as like, it's a classic. My mom read it, but I also saw it as like, I understood the story because I was also living not a super dissimilar yeah. story. Sure. Um, you know, and revisiting it now, I kind of feel the same way. And I feel like I'm, I know I'm going to step on some landmine saying That's fine, this, yeah. but you know, with, <laughs> with the recent discourse around updating texts, um, I'm really glad that this one has been updated and contemporized uh, to keep it so that this generation of young readers doesn't, freak out about what a sanitary belt is yeah. but instead understands that that's like yeah. not a thing we have anymore yeah um you know so so i think it it does this rare thing of being both at the same time yeah vanessa it sounds like to you is much more like getting a punk zine like that was your experience of it or, or was that <laughs> yes and it did like i did know oddly enough that it was a classic because the library like that librarian knew me it backwards forwards because i was like there all the time so like she when she put it mm-hmm. in my hands i remember her being like this is a classic like so like i don't know that i knew quote unquote what like a classic meant in that way because i was nine but i still like from how worn the copy was alone and like how she talked to me i was like oh this is a book that a lot of people have read and i had been reading judy bloom too so i guess there was like you know that um, but yeah, the reason I went to it at the time was very much a thing that now I, I look back at and go, and, you know, upon my reread, like, oh, I think I also enjoyed it because it literally was written the way like a kid would be writing this where you're like kind of whiny and mm. kind of have questions and kind of annoying, but like, mm-hmm. that's who you are when you're that age. And so I connected to it in the way that I was like, yeah, I hate it when people make me feel like I'm a baby and like, I want to know what's mm-hmm. going on with my body too. And like, why are boys ugh? like, so yeah, it was very impressive in that way where it, you know, impressed itself upon me. And now that I reread it, I was like, Oh wow, this was a really like seminal work in the way that it, li- it just, it spoke to kids the way they would speak to themselves and to one another. And I'm glad I reread mm-hmm. it for that. Cause I was like, Oh, I didn't pick up on that when I, you know, mm-hmm. was the kid. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think Rebecca and I said on the book Riot podcast, like this is the kind of thing where updating the book makes sense because like you're saying yeah. like some people, this is a handbook of how to go through puberty of how to start yeah. your period, mm-hmm. like that don't get anything else. So, there's a real like instruction manual quality to this, even if it just sort of isn't step by step. Um, my, I think I have the most recent edition, and the um, the uh, tampons are called teenage softies, or are they sanitary pads? I can't actually. Teenage no, can't softies. They're tampons are they're pads. Teenage yeah. softies. Teenage yeah. softies. Yeah. 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 Which I Which also is think the is name. the name of a uh, <laughs> Christian boy band that toured the Midwest I in s- the mid nineties. <laughs> I it. had a very similar thought. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> something else something else like that uh, if i've done my job right um ahead of this segment i will have done a little bit of scripted intro about the plot of of are you there goddess me margaret so we can go into sort of the themes why is this book important interesting then 
now ahead of the movie that's coming out. Um, I, I think it's probably best known for the getting your period and just sort of the brass tacks of this happening. Mm-hmm. Um, the In the plot, the girls wanting to have it happen, but also when it happens, it's different than they thought. In some cases, it's, it's, it's much worse or some people have a worse reaction. Some people it's less. And I think that maybe is a fairly apt description of a lot. Of, it can go a lot of different ways. No one's one experience is the same, but this specific story mm-hmm. kind of tries to capture a lot of variation in that. It's also about being 12, uh, with your family, with your grandparents, with your religion, with your school. I think at the time, Bloom talked about, um, she's she's given interviews over the year about this, but like the thing that I didn't remember at all was how much it was about religion. And it sounds dumb to say that because mm. it's in the title, exactly. Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret? <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, was that your experience as well, Vanessa, about you know what was important or what is interesting versus like maybe what's on the tin? Yeah, I don't know how I didn't like think about this because I was the whole reason I was reading this book is because I was a Catholic school kid who was yeah. not getting, you know, like that kind of education at that time. So it's like you would think that the religion part like would have impressed itself upon me like a lot more vigorously. But at the time, I don't think I was picking up on it just because I was so hell bent on like the other informational aspects. And then reading it now, I was like, oh, my gosh, like this, it's literally one of the linchpins around which the whole book, not whole book, but, you yeah. know, the whole dynamic with her grandparents and her parents I was like, why didn't I think about this more back then? Because I, I, I really it did not. I don't think I remembered it at all, really, until I reread it, and that's saying something. What about you, Kelly? I mean, what do you think of, you know, sort of the position, you know, over time, maybe the um, the weighting of the importance changing over time, or what strikes you as being the most contemporary bit of it now, if anything? You know, the thing that struck me reading it this time was how Margaret was integrating with a new friend group, mm. yeah. and... I think I think the thing that struck me most was her feelings toward Nancy and I mm. can't stop thinking about yeah. them. She is so like tentative toward Nancy and as I was reading it and you know we only get Margaret's perspective here but I found myself nodding my head with her going yeah that Nancy like <laughs> you know yeah. okay we 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 could have lunch together, but like, I'm not going to tell you my secrets. Yeah. And as we yeah. find out, Nancy's also a liar, yeah. um, a liar and a storyteller. And so there's something about recognizing how astute and accurately Margaret is able to like understand people that really, really struck me that I was like, wow, she, you know, you yeah. forget at age 12 friendships are so important and that's mm-hmm. really when they start to become as or more important than family relationships and so having this narrator who is so adept at like figuring out who is a good friend and who to you know keep it very casual with like yeah. i was impressed with that part I think that's so fascinating. I, I have a daughter who's 10, so she's a little younger than this, but times have changed, and so people are a little older in some yeah. ways, too, I think now, or think some mm-hmm. of this gets talked yep. about earlier. But the parsing of social dynamics, um, or the trying to parsing, mm-hmm. trying to parse social yeah. dynamics is 
is is really really astute. I think I don't know I, I don't know enough about children's literature, and if you if you all do know more about this, tell me. But I couldn't find reference to a book where, or think of one myself, an earlier example of like kids can be dicks. Like that's part of what's going on here, and that's part of what mm-hmm. Margaret yeah. is learning, even about herself eventually, right? Um, in one dramatic moment. And then what do you do with that? Because before about this age, you can kind of chalk stuff up to like, you know, the, the, the brutality of the innocent. Like if you're mean at seven or eight, you like, you're just, you're just a walking ego really until about that time. It's at this point where you sort of start to understand that maybe, you know, better and how you're dealing with that. Mm -hmm. Um, and all the transitions, right? I mean, there's so many transitions that are happening here and and it's, not a trope, it's maybe the question of middle grade into young adult question um, literature of how you go from one thing to another in all kinds of life. Um, so that one really struck me uh, as well. I guess a little bit on the, I don't know if you did any of like the background stuff. It sounds like Bloom herself, it's not autofiction, but she really identified no, with Margaret. She grew up in not yeah. dissimilar circumstances, but it sounds like it was really the religion piece. Again, it's on the tin. It's, you know, it's Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Um, that she found to be the most useful. 1970, the New York Times named it an outstanding book of the year. So right away, it became, you know, it became crowned, coronated by the people that do coronations. Immediately banned. Um, I just, I just found this piece mm-hmm, about how yeah. the first uh, Judy Bloom's first experience of book banning was she tried to give three autographed copies to her kids' library, their school library. And the principal never put it on the shelves because of the menstruation. So, like, right from the beginning, <laughs> that became the flashpoint. And not the, it wasn't the religion, right? It wasn't the religion. At least that's what <laughs> yeah. they said. It was the actual physical body stuff that I think to mm-hmm. this day is what get, makes people nervous. Um, so, it's been there. It's, it's really been there from the beginning. Let's talk about the reading experience itself. Did you enjoy it? What stuck out? Were there any clunkers? Um, Vanessa, let's start with you. Like... Coming back to it afresh, what strikes you about the book? I um, Kelly actually touched on what I was thinking earlier too. Was yeah, like her relationship mm. with Nancy and just how she goes about the world, having to like uh, consider people's intentions and and her own. And to, she actually does you know a lot more like self analysis. I think that I than I anticipated about like oh I am actually being the jerk in this moment. And just the like mature and immature but still way that she thinks about religion was a thing that I, again, I don't know why I didn't, I didn't think about it then. And Mm. perhaps that is, that could have been one of the reasons why, you know, my school library didn't like want us to read it because it was all about this idea of being raised by parents who believed that like, you should get to make that decision for yourself when you're much older. And that is a thing that just in full disclosure, like I think a lot about having been raised in the Catholic church. And so I, that was the (laughs) thing that I just kept coming back to over and over is like this, this kid being you know from different sides like I, I i wrote down the line when she was talking to her friends but like oh yeah i'm not really religious They're like oh, how do you know whether to enroll at the y or the jewish community center and i was like how do how do you know like I, you know yeah. i don't know that, that is a thing i thought about a lot in the reread that this kid was you know getting faced with these really big concepts and that her different portions of her family like didn't agree with it's the entire reason why she doesn't like know one set of her grandparents and how hard yeah. that feels for her i had totally like, forgotten that a lot. i had totally forgotten this really totally. like mm-hmm. intense family dynamic and it's precipitated by religion and i it, it feels like it is really a religious thing like her parents or like correct me if i'm wrong here it's her mom's parents who are yeah. pretty her mom's religious parents, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah. She that is the source man. of estrangement yeah. because she married a Jewish man, but also then her mom is secular Christian or Protestant or whatever. Yes. Are the grandparents mm-hmm. Catholics, Vanessa? Your radar is probably more attuned. I, I couldn't remember if I could parse exactly where they were. I don't know that I could parse it even this time. Yeah. They said Sunday school, which to me sounds very, like that's how Catholics refer to like it as Sunday school, but that could also be Christian. I actually couldn't parse that part out. Yeah. I I, I don't think this is how Methodists of my ilk would have behaved. We would have been much more passive aggressive and it would have taken a long, longer time (laughs) to get there. But I, you know, it's typically not, I don't know. So there's a certain more extreme version. And I guess as an adult, and the parental dynamics of parents and grandparents and kid that really struck me mm-hmm. um, this time as being prescient. Mm-hmm. And I think at 12, you don't get that yeah. yet. Um, no. you, you're, you're subject well, to it and you're aware of it, but you may yeah. not be able to parse those higher order things. Go ahead, Kelly. Uh, I was going to say, like, I grew up in a very... Uh, what is the word I want to use here? <laughs> the family dynamics in mm. my family were not great. Okay. And um I I don't know where I was like age-wise when I first read this book, but a lot of Margaret's experiences were not dissimilar from mine in terms mm. of feeling a bit like I was kind of a pawn in the middle mm. of a family game. Yeah. yeah. And Rereading this book and rereading it while I'm currently taking a class that has required me to do a lot of like analysis of my development and growing up, um, mm. it was it was an experience to be there and to be thinking about the religious piece particularly. Um, my parents divorced when I was five, and it was not a nice divorce, mm. um, and. Uh, part of why it was not a nice di- divorce is that my dad was cheating on my mom. This is this is going to come into play in a second. Okay. Um, he he ended up getting remarried, and he married the woman he was cheating on my mom with. They had a Catholic wedding, which mm-hmm. I guess somehow they got to do that. I don't know how, <laughs> but as I got a little bit older, and they wanted to get. Um, wanted to have kids and they wanted their kids baptized in the Catholic faith. Mm. My dad had to annul his marriage to my mom to do that. And I remember learning about this and thinking to myself, like how religion is such a like ax in a family and in a situation like my own, you know, my dad had to claim that I was an illegitimate child in order for his, you know, more current kids to be, baptized Catholic and like as I'm reading this with Margaret and watching what's going on with her mom's parents and being told she can't go visit her dad's mom because they're coming to visit like it brought up all of those feelings again like you know there were so many things I couldn't do or so many things where like my life was put on the line for somebody else's religious beliefs Mm. and it was hard not to like feel that like frustration with her the whole time like i wanted her to pack her bag and show up to the airport anyway and be like i'm going like you figure your stuff out by yourselves like you don't need me here (laughs) which back then you could conceivably do because of security Weirdly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could have just walked on a plane and like asked to buy a ticket, like on a train, where you can buy a ticket after getting on yeah. anymore. She had the ticket already. She yeah. didn't even need to do that. Wouldn't even need to do that. That, that it's it's true. And wow. that there's a 
you know, the Pixar does this thing where there's a, there's a couple levels to the movie, right? Where they're like, you know, there's the eight year old that can enjoy it, and then like the fifteen year old, and then like the the parents weeping in the back, right? Like that's kind of the Pixar mm-hmm. move. And I was a little attuned to that here that it felt like. I don't know if she wrote at all with adults in mind, but there was a layer to come to it as an adult where you could appreciate it. A, it was yep. identifying with the dad who stuck his hand in a lawnmower stupidly and cut his hand. I was like, oh, <laughs> I see. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Does she have a webcam? She do that. Um, that's, a, that's a different. But then the dynamics between you know the grandma who comes in and out and how mm-hmm. there's sort of a a bubble space created when Margaret and mm-hmm. her paternal grandmother together, the dynamics with, um, with the maternal grandparents, and then watching the parents themselves try to negotiate this. And like, there's, there's yeah. a couple of notable silences between them when things develop um, that I don't know. I, maybe a 12 year old is getting it, or maybe it's there for the 12 year olds that are ready to get it, to get it. But like, there's a couple moves there that I thought were pretty remarkable um, in that particular regard. And, and I think even just from a plot point of view, What's the climax of like? What's the what to use the oldest Aristotelian? Like, what's the what's the peak in terms of the plot here? Because I think it's not what people would expect it to be. Do you have a sense of it, Kelly? Like, where do you point to the shift from the rising action to sort of the end, if it has such a thing? That's a good question, and I'm not going to answer it because I want to come back to something else you said. Okay, yeah, that's fine. You know, she's. Yeah, she's 12 and like starting to understand it. And I I think something that doesn't get talked about a lot is that kids who are kids of tough family situations yeah. are going to mature in yeah. regard to like understanding the world a little bit differently. And I think that, you know, she's if we start like at the beginning of the story, she's had this gigantic shift that they move from New York city to the suburbs. And for her, like that is her whole world changes Mm -hmm. just in that single move. And where dad is, you know, real excited about this opportunity. Like she is mourning a huge loss here. She's mourning the loss of her old community. She's mourning the loss of being a city girl. She's mourning the loss of being with grandma, whenever she wants to. And like, as I was reading it, I kept thinking, like, when she's with Grandma, like, that's when she gets to be the, like, freest she can be mm. and the most mature she can be. Um, and so I don't necessarily see, like, a a climax here. I see just sort of this development of and navigation through so much change and what yeah. that means on, you know, every level to, to have so much change in your life. And that 12 years old, I think, is really that age where, you know, for some kids, Margaret being one of them, like, you're ready to pack your bags and be an adult and, like, get out of, the, you know, like, live on your own. Um, and for other 12-year-olds, they're more like Nancy in that they are still living in this very, like, childlike world. And, and so 12 is kind of that, like you see those big rifts in development. Yeah. Yeah. I was not really a trick question. I was more asking it because it's like, you would think our cultural memory would be the mo like the book shifts on when she actually gets her period. She's been waiting on it the whole time. Mm -hmm. She, it finally happens and that happens. I think it's, this is a little more structured, like, I don't know, return of the Jedi where there's like three scenes that are operating in parallel. Yeah. It's her period. Mm -hmm. It's her realizing and confrontation with the girl at school that she's been 
if not bullying, at least she's been hearing lies about and judging and says something really terrible and realize it's all been yeah. false. Mm. And then she sees her sort of the blow up around the dinner table where like her, yep. her grandparents have come in. They've written this note. We've been away for 14 years. I think a more traditional telling of this kind of story in different kind of context would be this gets healed. It doesn't go that way. I think that was surprising to me at 12. It's like the grandparents came after 14 years. I guess it's literally the opposite of a come to Jesus moment for them. It's a come away to Jesus towards their family. Mm-hmm. And they Leave the they can't day. get there. <laughs> they, 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 yeah. Nothing has changed. Actually, nothing. I thought you think in that moment, they're like, you know, we think we've made a mistake. It, it sounds like we think differently about how to deal with it. They don't think anything differently. Um, when they get there, mm-hmm. and then we kind of return to the status quo, um, and the period comes, and it's not that life changing. I mean, it is, and it isn't. Like you're not that different the day before, like you are, but your parents are still your parents. You're still in the same school, yeah. and I, it, I think that also, that also strikes me now as we tend to think of a big transition as being life changing, and it can be. But sometimes there's a lot more continuity as you think. That if if you increase your bust, you're going to have a bust, but you're still going to be dealing with the Nancys of the world. Your your parents are still mm-hmm. going to be weirdos sometimes. Yeah. And I think that revelation for a kid, especially, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that because I I can't get back to my eyes. Like, is it more comforting to know that some things will change, but it's kind of going to be the same, or is that terrifying? It's like, wait, I was hoping for things to change because these girls want to grow up. I think that's the other thing that struck me as a kid. I don't think as a as a boy, my feeling was like I was like, super excited to go through puberty, and I don't know that they are either. But they want to grow up, and mm. they want the pieces that come along with that, um, and that's that's com- can be pl- completely interesting because what they're seeing from adults is not awesome. It's like why do you want to be like the adults in your life? Uh, Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was Vanessa, actually going to say you? that. Yeah, yeah, when I the, the weird thing about reading it that I I definitely did pick up on was that I was again 9 and she was 12 and I could not for the life of me understand like the rush to grow up thing because it felt very isolating. And like my school literally did a thing where like they found out that another girl maybe like 6 months after me like also got her period in like the 3rd grade and they literally introduced us to each other like I mean we knew each other right but it's like now you two are in this weird little club and we were like oh okay like you know Good whatever Lord. and we felt so like this is weird like people are asking us a bunch of questions and we have to go shop for training bras and we're 9 and it like I don't want to do this and then be you know reading this book where the girls were so hell bent on you know getting their little double A's and uh, you know wanting to like reach all these milestones. But by the time mm-hmm. I finished it, I did I do remember getting that sense of like and now life just goes on. So I've started describing just, yeah. the book upon the reread as being kind of a slice of life book, which like maybe sounds funny, but it is mm. just sort of this little like perfect capture of like a time in your life that feels really monumental and is it feels very dramatic if you're like experiencing it but then like once you do and you get over it this is just your new normal and i i do remember picking that up from the book of being like okay so then she got it and like yeah it's a thing and you're gonna go use these teenage softies but like you're also then just gonna go back to like loving your grandma and like having feelings about other things and it helped me kind of relax about the like this isn't as maybe as big a deal as I'm making it out to be. And I don't know that that was the intention, but that's how I felt. And because it's like, it takes place over like a year. Is it like even a, is mm-hmm. it even a full calendar year? Something like that? I think it is. Yeah. It's it her is. Okay. entire sixth grade. Entire sixth yeah. grade, yeah. Okay. Um, any, let's do specific things. Favorite moments, um, things that stuck out to you. I already mentioned the one that I felt I had to like 
make sure no one's looking in the window <laughs> about the, the, the dad sticking his hand um, in, the, in the lawnmower. Any specificity, uh, specificities we want to shout out here, Kelly or Vanessa? I had, um, I, I really love that there's a character named Moose and there's no <laughs> commentary yeah. about that at all. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> I loved the little name they gave their secret club being the PTSs, like the preteen sensations. Like, and they workshopped uh, them, right? Like, no, 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 yeah, not that like, one. Really <laughs> and that they tried to like do the burn book before it was a burn book, except it was about boys. And like Nancy has 18 and everybody else is like, yeah, this is boring. It's still, you know, whatever his name was <laughs> after week seven. Like it's still, still got my top dude. <laughs> Yeah, just, they thought it was going to fluctuate like, like the price of Bitcoin or something. They, yep. they weren't like, oh, that's kind of who I like. I guess it's going to be a little more static than I thought. Yeah. yeah, um, then, yeah. The, the other one that sticks out to me is uh, when, I guess it's related to that, but as seeing it in my own kids, you know, having kids is a completely different dynamic on this situation. Sure. But like the the pop-up secret club that lasts for one recess and then disappears one is recess? definitely a thing that still exists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's very, that's very, very Aww. relatable. In, in terms of passing this on to a 10, 11, or 12-year-old now, what, if any, reservations do we have with anything? You know, writing something 50 years ago, and I think it's remarkably current or remarkably relatable now. Is there anything that your 2023 eyes saw? They're like, eh, I don't know about that these days. Anything strike you? I actually, um, as I finished it, I thought to myself, like, I can't wait to give this to my daughter yeah. when she's like eight, nine. Like, I think it's appropriate. And yeah. I would hope that I raise, you know, a daughter in such a way that if there are questions or anything stands out to her, she feels comfortable, like, asking me about it, you know? Mm, um, yeah. And if she doesn't, the reality is she now lives in a world where, like, she'll be able to Google the thing in her pocket. Yep. yep. Um, and, yep. you know, like, that's fine. Um, it, I I think about Forever, Judy Bloom's other book, and how it was one that was passed from kid to kid to kid to kid. Mm-hmm. This seems like the kind of book that's passed from parent, oh, parent to kid. that's an yeah, interesting yeah. point, Kelly. Yeah, Why? Am I outsourcing my hard conversation with that? Or is it really more of a life jacket? Or what am I? Because I'm thinking about this. I'm like, my daughter's 10. She saw me reading it. She's heard about it. And I'm not reluctant to give it to her. I'm also, I guess, I guess the question, to be honest, the conversation I'm not sure I want to have is what is Playboy? I'm not sure I want to explain pornography. <laughs> Maybe she knows. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the one, but everything else. And again, it's not inappropriate. She's going to learn. It's out there. And, you know, I'm a prude by nature, so there's that piece that's on it. But um, that's the only thing that really strikes me. But, like, so if it's passed from parent to parent, what are we doing if we're doing it that way? Because I think that's a really interesting way. Because neither of you described it, nor did I, of getting this from our friend. Right. A friend of ours saying, you've got to read this. It was was there, librarian, kind of seen it. What are what am I doing if I, I'm giving this to Rowan Kelly? I think it's a a good way to start a conversation. Exactly. I think it's also mm. you know, and and it doesn't have to be around the puberty aspect. I think there's a lot to talk here. Oh, about she knows religion. way more about that. There, I think actually that's the least yeah. she knows I mean, they're really yeah. good these days about or at least where I am, I should say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It depends where you're at, yeah. but I think that the kids are more attuned to that than they would be to some of these tougher conversations yeah. about points, family, yeah. about friendship, about the friend stuff, yes. you know, and 
And I think that they'll see themselves somewhere in here. You know, maybe yep. they're the Norman Fishbean who has to invite the entire class. To oh, party Norman. And, oh, Norman. You know. <laughs> uh, also, I absolutely asked my mom if we could have a supper party or whatever they called it. And she was like, excuse me. And I was like, okay, no. <laughs> no that's no like, supper oh, parties. They're having a supper party. I'm like, so kids have supper parties. Um, but to for, answer for the 20 kids, question, what a nightmare. Go ahead. Exactly. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. never going to happen. But yeah, like, I think no. it is just such In a good touch. In today's economy, book. no. <laughs> In today's economy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just such a, like, like we all know, right? It's a thing. It's one thing to be told. Uh, you should be a good friend. Don't pick on this kid. You could be in their position. Religion is hard, whatever. Right. It's another to a read it for a lot of us, but then like, again, read it from like a very specific kid perspective where that kid is prob, you know, not we're, mm-hmm. we're all different, but watching her react and feel and go through the thing and come to these realizations from this like kid point of view, I think is a great conversation starter. Cause you can give this to someone and say, Hey, I think you should read this. I'd love to answer your questions, etc." But it's not necessarily just the, like me telling you from like my wizened 40 years or whatever, like you should do X, Y, and Z and feel X, Y, Z things, which we can argue yes. is the reason we reach out for books like this. But I, I love it as a conversation starter because hopefully it just feels more organic to hear it from a voice that sounds more like what you hear in your own head. Um, so yeah, mm. I love it for that. Yeah. I, and I think that that's part of the reason that this book and Bloom's other books and books like it end up on the radars of book yep. censors. It's yeah. that... It's not an adult telling them what to think. It's not from a voice of authority. It's from a voice of experiencing, of going through a thing, of not having clear answers. Mm. Um, We never get a clear answer here. Instead, we get this messy character who, like, figures some things out and doesn't figure other things out. And there's no Greek chorus. There's no, you know adult who comes in and says well that was the poor choice or that was the right choice and Mm -hmm. in the future we're going to do x y and z and for some adults not having authority over the fact or you know having authority over a little person is terrifying um and so this is a book that gives permission to young people to be people and not to be you know uh, little little versions of their parents. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because from an authorial point of view, there's no right answer exactly. I mean, there's no like moral to the story by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. If anything, mm-hmm. it's more like affirmative of like, this is an experience. Like this is life. Like this yep. is mm-hmm. what it is. And it's going to have good life bits and you're going to do, <laughs> yeah, you're going to do good yeah. things. And you're yep. going to do bad things. And, you know, she does give Margaret the reflection piece about when, when she's bullied someone, but she also has complicated feelings about a lot of things and i think mm-hmm. i think that piece of it of just affirming like this is messy man this is messy and mm-hmm. you know you're going to get through pieces of it better than you're going to get through some other pieces um i guess it maybe brings us to the adaptation Lo- long wanted as a big or you know a feature film kind of adaptation yeah. um i you know i got started thinking about this again when the trailer came out i knew it was gonna, you know there's so many adaptations now that's like it's hard to pay attention to any particular thing this one did strike me because there hasn't been a marquee bloom adaptation that like with with big movie stars and a big budget and all that kind of stuff which yeah. take it for what mm-hmm. you will that's a thing but then also it's 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 also 53 years old at this point it's not one of those books like you know the the, the trailer for the sympathizer just came out which won a national yeah. book award and everything but like 
this is that's a situation where the the adaptation is going to elevate the profile. And this may a little bit, but this is a little more like the movie isn't crowning the book. And in a way the book is crowning the movie adaptation. Like it's much a bigger deal that this book is becoming, you know, finally getting the treatment. No, it doesn't need to be lifted out of anything. Correct. Do you have any expectations of the movie? Do you think it's going to turn out to be particularly well? Is there any sort of landmines in the adaptation? Or, like, what's your expectation? We should say, too, I think, Kelly, you were mentioning this before, you've, you've been invited to a, a screening. There are some other panel stuff, and SAU were, too. The publicity machine for this is wild, and I guess maybe where we exist mm-hmm. in the book ecosystem, we're, like, right on the front lines, yeah. right? Because we do we Young are. Adult, and we cover yeah. kids, and we're online, and all that kind of stuff. But, like, Kelly, what... It seems like they're pretty thirsty for this uh, to to be a thing, as all productions yeah. are. Do you think are are we re- are we excited? The book people or the people that care about this book are we excited for this? Can you tell? You know, I'm I'm struggling with trying to figure this out myself, mm-hmm. and I say that because when I finished reading this book and I started thinking about the adaptation, I was thinking about something that the um, person who acquired and was executive creator on for the Babysitter's Club adaptation oh, set. good comp. And what she had said was that um, she's always looking for uh, properties that can be enjoyed across generations. And the Babysitter's Club kind of hit that niche perfectly mm-hmm. because the parents will like it, they remember it, the kids will like it because it's kids. Yeah. And we did not see that level of publicity for Mm -hmm. that series as we are seeing for this book and i think that the publicity machine around this is tapping into something that is missing they're tapping into the fact that there aren't great cross-generational media experiences to be had right now and this i think is one of those things that is and it will continue to be you know this is a a film that my kid, you know, will see when she's old enough and then she'll be able to watch it if she has kids with her kids. Because yeah. um, from the, the trailer and from what I've read, I've, I try not to read too much about it, but they maintain like the time era yeah. and everything. Yeah. So it's not going to feel dated immediately. It's going to feel like it was written in 1970, but they updated, you know, what they're going to use to um, handle their period, that kind of thing. Um, so... I'm very optimistic and I'm trying to go in. I, I am going to an advanced screening, but I'm going in with the mindset of like who they're targeting this toward and whether or not that's successful because I suspect the adaptation is going to be fine itself, yeah. like the actual taking of the text and making a story, but rather like who are they aiming this towards and like is it going to have um, an enduring quality to it? Yeah. They spent the money. I mean, you can tell from the production yeah. design, mm-hmm. like you said. Oh, yeah. They're ma- trying to make it look great. like the early yeah. 70s. Rachel McAdams is the mom, which is not an awesome part, but, you know, it's that's a serious actress. And then what a wonderful part for Kathy Bates. I, I can see why Kathy Bates oh takes gosh, the part perfect. as a grandma. It's yeah. not It's not out of the realm of possibility because to think that she might be, like, nominated for a Golden Globe or something like that. Because like, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot she gets to do there. Uh, Vanessa, how about you? What's your sense of the appetite for this, and are we are we ready? Are we excited? Is this going to be a thing? Yeah, I, Kelly kind of took the words out of my mouth, which is that I was really hoping that you know one of the reasons it's getting the amount of publicity that it is is to like yeah, hopefully 
capture that like this has appeal for so many people for so many different reasons please come see this like because like, I, I started to think this is related but not that like i just saw the, the mario movie with my nephew who's you know four mm. and i went mm-hmm. in just being like i'm taking my kid you know this my nephew to this movie that he wants to see but then i got there and i was so pleasantly surprised by like how funny it was for a, all the adults in the room who had this great like just dopamine nostalgia hit from all the like yeah. care that they took to put like <laughs> easter eggs and stuff and and then the kids and that I, in the theater, I was like, oh, I hope that that's a little bit like what the Are You There, Goddess Margaret adaptation will be, where like the adults come away from it feeling, sure, maybe the nostalgia, but also that it has, like Kelly said, an enduring quality that this is the kind of film that can be, uh, I don't know if instructive is the right word, but that it'll be a classic for those reasons, that it is maybe a conversation starter, that it's great for kids going through a thing. I kept thinking a lot about the literal climate that we're in with the book banning and stuff and how there's this whole segment of the population that like wouldn't want something like this to exist for all the like topics, mm. specifically religion and like mm-hmm. um, bodily autonomy and, and, you know, period stuff or puberty in general. And how that would make me, if I was, you know, the people behind this project, also that much more adamant of, like, wanting to get it out into the world. It's just a really... And they couldn't have timed it particularly this way, but it is a really interesting time for this movie to be coming out because of where we find ourselves. So I'm also very optimistic, both for cast reasons, for intent reasons, for cross-generational appeal reasons, and I, I really, really hope it's successful. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Any parting shots before we get out of here? Uh, on uh, Bloom, Are You There, You Gods Me, Margaret, um, Teenage Softies, or Lawnmower Maintenance, anything in there we need to we need to spend another moment on? <laughs> teenage Softies. Um, I just wanted to, I, I just wanted to like, uh, to encourage anybody who's listening to this to uh, watch the adaptation of Tiger Eyes if you haven't oh, yet. Oh, I haven't um, seen it. Tell I me about know. it. Ooh, yeah. Um, I, I can't remember when it came out, but I remember it was streaming on Netflix. So I don't know if it's still there or not, but um, I really enjoyed it. And it was one that I believe she adapted with one of her kids. So it's like, it's not a big budget um, film, but it was very well done. And um, it was the first adaptation of any of her work. And she wanted to be the person who did it. And I think it'll mm-hmm. be really interesting to see that. And then to see what happens with this one, like how you can see her vision coming into the adaptation on a bigger, bigger level. Yeah. I was just uh, linking today to the Times Most Influential People of 2023, and Judy Bloom was on the list. I, she may have been on it before, but it, <laughs> it feels like maybe it's the book bannings and people getting older that were ki- have been kids for a long time reading Judy Bloom. But didn't have, I don't know, like, I don't know, I guess the adapta- a big adaptation that's around maybe matters more than I think for the stature of people, but um, a victory lap here for Judy Bloom at the end. Well deserved. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. A lifetime of doing mm-hmm. this. Kelly and Vanessa, thank you so much. That's uh, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. It's coming out soon. I don't know when the movie's coming out. You have the internet, listeners. You can figure it out. I'm not going to look for it right now. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 
and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Coming up next, a conversation with Professor Sarah Hart. She's the Gresham Professor of Geometry in Gresham College over in the UK. She's the first woman to hold that position ever. And the first person to hold that position ever was in 1597. So it's been around for a while. Her new book, Once Upon a Prime, is an exploration of the confluence of math and literature. I dug the heck out of it. I was really excited to have her on the show. So stick around for that coming up after the break. Congratulations on the book. I hope you have a wonderful Thank time you. talking to people about it. it. It felt to me, I really got a sense that you had fun writing the book. I very, I really, really did. Uh, so it was one of those, I mean, kind of coming out of the pandemic. So 2021 was how yeah. it started. Okay. The New York Times did a profile on me that I was giving these lectures and they were about music and art and literature and kind of the links with maths and culture. Mm-hmm. That profile, I had no idea this would happen. But I was like, oh, well, it's lovely New York Times and everything, but that's in America. That's not going to have any impact on my life. You know, maybe I'll try and get a copy. I did not know. (laughs) I did not know. So in the week after that was published, I got like 10 emails from literary agents, book editors, you know, editors saying, have you thought of writing a book? And of course, well, I mean, yeah. yeah. So I for me, it had been a, oh, I'd so love to do this one day. And then suddenly within you know, a few weeks, it became, I'm doing this book. Wow. And that time was actually, there was a lot going on. It was quite stressful. My daughter was quite ill. And actually doing this was so reward. You know, I could just go into my little, we've got yeah. a little sort of office shed thing at the bottom of the garden. I could go in there, just f- fall in to some beautiful literature and talk enthusiastically about it like george Eliot doing your conical sections right? Yes, yeah right exactly you know and i just i loved it so much and it actually was it really helped me doing it in fact there's so many ways to get into the book it's called once upon a prime and i think i'd like to start here because for those of us many of us who think of ourselves as bookworms or book nerds and, and you kind of say this yourself, we can kind of get separated at some long, somewhere along the line into a math person or we're a word person, we're a language, we're a literature person. Some, some people use you know, fiction as an escape from math or vice versa. And I think to some degree, or feels to me like some degree, this book and kind of your worldview maybe is trying to say, we don't have to do it this way. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. I think for me, my own personal experience of growing up feeling that I was because I enjoyed mathematics so much and I was good at it and it became clear that I would be a mathematician and so I was told well that makes you a scientist that puts you on that path and actually my interests were always reading lots and lots of fiction I loved languages I studied as many languages as I could I love the way words fit together. I love the creative expression of writing and reading. So for me, it's part of who I am as a person. 
And I really felt sad that I was being told, well, that's, you know, you kind of have to make this choice. And I really don't feel that they're different things, actually. Literature and mathematics, both of those are creative endeavors that help us to understand, you know, who we are, our place in the universe, to, to see patterns and to see beautiful creative outputs and uh, you know that's that's how i see both of those things so for me they're they're very similar one of my favorite moments in the book and it, it felt organic and i don't know how close it was to your idea for this book or the lectures you've been giving that incorporate mathematics was when you're reading with it sounds like your friend you and your friend speed read the booker shortlist every year right yes yeah in a recent year you were reading through eleanor catton's huge, I think 832 page, meaningfully 832 page novel, The Luminaries. And because you are who you are, you notice something that I wouldn't necessarily notice being me, you as a mathematician. So with The Luminaries, uh, if you've read it, it's it's a big book. It's over 800 pages long. And when you start reading it, you can pick up, there's a little bit of structure happening. The most obvious way is that there are links to astrological signs. There are 12 key characters who are linked one to each of the 12 signs of the zodiac. There are two other characters, the luminaries, the sun and the moon. And that's kind of laid out for you at the beginning. And then you begin with the first section and there's a particular layout of you know the stars in the sky it tells you something is going to be happening related to astrology. And, and that part of the structure kind of speaks to the themes in the book, which are about chance and fate and destiny and how much control we have over over these things. Now, what you don't notice straight away is that that first section, right, it's very long (laughs) and you sort of forget. You think it's one of those books that doesn't have chapters, right? Right. It just it's just a very long thing. And then then the section comes to an end at like 400 pages in. And there's another section and that's a bit shorter. And gradually there are more sections. And so you, you can feel that as the book is happening. But what is perhaps less obvious is that these have a particular mathematical structure to them. They are halving in length each time. So the second chapter is half the length of the first, then half again, half and half and half. And it keeps halving. And in mathematics, this is called a geometric progression where you have the same sort of fraction that it's repeating every time. And what this does in the book, it's really clever it gives you this spiral-like structure where every chapter is halving and halving in length and it kind of spiraling in on the very final shortest chapter where actually by that point, the two characters, the sun and the moon, are kind of trapped in their fate. So it's a brilliantly clever device to add to all of these themes in the book about you know chance and fate and destiny. But the mathematical thing that she does, it creates this beautiful spiral structure But you can also work out mathematically there are real implications for how long the book could be. And I won't, you know, go to the details right now, but you can work out that actually the very first chapter, there are 12 chapters in all, the first chapter has to be more than 2,000 times as long as the last chapter. So this is, the last chapter has to be pretty short. And there's another little thing I I can't resist sharing with this, this with you because it's so fun. Because in this book, there are lots of great themes. It's got everything, the plot. It's got murder. It's got opium. It's got 4,096 pounds worth of stolen gold. It's got love, betrayal, everything you could want, right? But that amount of gold that's stolen is absolutely linked in with the structure of the book. Because the total length of the book, you can work it out in terms of the length of the last chapter. It's 4,096 minus one 
times the length of the last chapter. So she, you know, you might say, well, you can spot that as a mathematician. Maybe it's, you know, she was thinking of that. This is hard proof that Eleanor Catton was exactly. She knew exactly what she was doing. She leaves that little clue for us in the book. And if you, this is one of the broader points I try to make in my writing, that if you've got that little bit of mathematical lens, you know, to view this through, you can see that little Easter egg and go, oh, that's a power of two, 4,096. I recognize that. That's telling me something. And that's one of the delights, you know, of, of, of just approaching things with a slightly different angle. You see the, all these extra treats. Mm-hmm. I, I think treats such a wonderful way of thinking about it because you don't necessarily have to get it, right? If you read the luminaries, yeah. or, but it's another way of engaging with a text. And one I don't pay enough attention to as a reader is when I see a number um, or I see a mathematical reference, my mind doesn't naturally glom onto it as you know a locus of interest. Is That's maybe the, the biggest takeaway you could take is like, slow down for a moment if you see the yeah. reference to a number or a cycloid. So I think that's maybe for someone who is maybe a little nervous about thinking about mathematics and their reading of you know their Victorian novels or their beloved cozy mysteries. Just take a look and slow down, and maybe you'll find uh, something there. I want to go back to the cat and the luminaries because it sounds a little bit, I don't know, abstruse. You know, you have a geometrical progression, and, and you know it halves every time, and that's a quite beautiful one. But on a basic level, math can offer an author some. I guess a lattice work for different kinds of choices, right? So can you explain what that something else is that a mathematical structure can offer a, a work of literature? Yeah. So for me, a structure, a constraint of any kind, is not something that stops you being creative. It's something that helps you to be creative. You know, we we can talk about a sonnet. Now, some of the finest poems in the English language and in other languages are sonnets. And Shakespeare's not sitting there going, oh, I've got to make every other line rhyme and then have an iambic I mean, maybe every once in a so while. Annoying. Yeah, maybe every once maybe, in a while. Like, yeah, gonna... yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, these things, well, there's a great quote um, from the Irish poet Paul Muldoon. He said that uh, poetic constraints are a straitjacket in the way that straitjackets were a straitjacket for Houdini. What an unbelievable line. Yeah, yeah. you know, it gives you something to start with within which you know you can just your your creativity is the only limit it gives you a starting point and this again i make a parallel with mathematics because if you start with nothing at all there's nowhere to go if you start with a few rules then you have a playground to explore and you can prove you know pythagoras's theorem or any other things that you like so you have to start with a few things a few little Mm -hmm. constraints just like with the haiku, you know, the number 17 is is inspiring you within that limit to really push yourself creatively because it's hard to do. And, and so there's no room for waste. There's no room for just, oh, I'll do any old thing. You've got to be absolutely on it. And, and your creativity is pushed by doing that. Yeah. Another way, you're, another lens you're using mathematics to do is like, what does the use of mathematics or a mathematical reference mean in the context of a sentence, a scene, a character, or a story. So, for example, what does it mean for George Eliot to reference mathematics? Or what does it mean for Melville to reference a cycloid in you know, a scene about rendering whale fat? What should we be looking for when we see mathematical language used, not structurally, but sort of in the flow of the story? Yeah, so allusions and symbolism 
mathematical or otherwise a part of how you know an author gives flavor to mm. to a, a narrative and i think there are a couple of different ways that mathematics can appear in in this in this way so firstly some authors just really like mathematics <laughs> you know and there's they they just love it and it's so it's part of the the furniture of their right. minds yeah. and that just comes out so Herman Melville is definitely one of these. I mean, you can just see reading any one of his books, he just throws in mathematical things because that's what's there, right? Yeah. And and it's lovely, lovely to see. George Eliot is another one. She studied mathematics for fun. She studied it for uh, a solace. It helped her feel calm. It helped her relax. And in particular, she talks about, so Adam Bede in her first novel, Adam Bede, he consoles himself after his father dies by saying, look, everything's in turmoil still, but but the square of four is still 16. Yeah. You know, this that's true when a man's miserable and when he's happy. Those the, the truths of mathematics are eternal. So for those authors, they like mathematics, it just comes out in what they're writing. Now, there's an there's one more brilliant way, and then there's one slightly irritating way that we'll sandwich it between. Um the irritating way is when uh, you just need someone to sound clever, right? Yeah. And so then they, you know, they find a short proof of Fermat's last theorem. <laughs> that could be sl slightly irritating as a mathematician who is a person, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as right. well as a mathematician. You know, we, we are we are fully rounded individuals, most of us, and and so it's not great to just see, oh, you know, Professor Clever <laughs> does this thing and is not has no feelings or empathy, and just you know, there they are. Right. But one final lovely way that I'll, I'll talk, go back to loveliness because that's where I like being yes, um, that is actually numbers themselves have so much symbolism throughout literature, but also our culture. Uh, and the number three in particular, I would say, you know, if you have to pick one number, think about fairy tales, folk tales, you've got Goldilocks and the three bears, and you, I don't know, you always have three wishes, and there are three mm -hmm. good fairies, and that three brothers will go on a quest. And in stories, it'll be the first two brothers say, fail in their quest, and then the third brother, who is the best and most courageous, will succeed. And so threes have this real role to play in narrative, but they're also everywhere in expressions that we use. So you can just think of, you know, so many idioms in our in the English language, for sure. Like we have three cheers, right? No one gets two cheers. Uh, when you when you run a race, it's ready, set, go. One, two, three. At the end, you can win silver, gold, or bronze. Three prizes. We learn our ABCs. We don't learn our ABCDs. Political slogans. You know, read my lips. No new taxes somehow we, we're more likely to believe those. So all of these things just, and that's just from the number three, a really big part of our cultural experience that we may not even really notice until you start looking. And I guarantee you, once you start looking for the number three, you will see it everywhere. The problem though, and this is one thing that's going to stick with me from your book in a, a fun and irritating way, is the <laughs> paucity of sixes though. As many threes as there are, the darn yeah. six, Sestina's to the side. That you know, that's yeah, yeah. Weird, weirdly six is is it's a weird number, but you you know there are sixes out there, but you're sort of postulating if you think about the sixes that are out there, they're usually in reference to seven, right? Seven yeah. minus yeah. one for whatever yeah. whatever reason it looks like. And I was thinking about the only every six I could come up with 
was kind of a, I don't know, bastardization of some real number, a seven or a half of a 12 or two threes or something else like that. So if you're listening to this, look for sixes and you won't find them. And that, so that void can be interesting too. That absence can be interesting. And I guess that's a way for pivoting toward my last little section I wanted to do. So I was thinking you have, there's so many anecdotes. I want to play this little game if you'll indulge me for a minute. So many anecdotes. I picked out three. And three, three, of course, three, of course. Right. I had to. (laughs) And I'd like you to tell me which of them sounds the most like a Borges short story. So these are real anecdotes, but I think we could plausibly imagine them as being something that Borges would be interested in. Let's start with Melville for a second. So this is a writer, Turbin Melville, Moby Dick. It's one of the, the great monuments of literature at all right now. You could argue probably 10 greatest novels, whatever you want to say. Borges would definitely write a a short story about the greatest, one of the greatest novels of all time to write this magnum opus. It it goes over with a thud. I think the number you say is he makes 500 bucks in his lifetime off Moby Dick, something like that, Melville, inflation adjusted, whatever. Okay. Not. And then he's like, nope, I'm out. I don't get any acclaim. And he goes, works in a customs house for two years and that's it. Okay. So that's Borges character one. Borges character two is a translator who gets the job of translating a French novel of some length that doesn't use the letter E. And so not only does the original French novel not use the letter (laughs) E, but he now has the mind-splittingly difficult task of translating it from French into English, also not using the letter E. And the third would be Lewis Carroll, the priest-slash-mathematician who becomes one of the Mount Rushmore children's authors of all time. So those are my three anecdotes that all sound to me like plausible Borges stories. Which one of them to you seems like the most likely candidate to be a Borges character? I'm, I'm going to go for the translator. It has to be. I'm so glad you said that. I was hoping you would pick that. Tell me why. (laughs) Well, I mean, the, the impossibility of this task, and this is, so this is something that has really happened, right? For people listening. There was this uh, French uh, author, Georges Perec, who wrote a novel called La Disparition, which doesn't have the letter E in it at all anywhere. And then uh, I think it's Adair who translated it into English as A Void. void. So even the the title is clever. You say, oh, of course. (laughs) You know, brilliant. But the, the level of skill required to do that when you already have, I mean, it's hard enough to write a text without the use of the letter E. Uh, and this is a full length novel. Yeah. Novel length, not a short story, not a, yeah, not a yeah. haiku. This is a novel. Yeah. This is a novel. And it's such a clever, clever novel uh, of Perec because not only did it omit the letter E. Now, actually, there, that wasn't the first novel to do that. It was an earlier novel that did it. But that novel didn't really do anything with the fact that it was omitting the letter E. It's a parlor trick, kind of, if you think of it that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's sort of an intellectual crossword puzzle, very Mm -hmm. clever, but not kind of memorable, and people don't remember it. The reason that Perec's work is so much more interesting and I think worth talking about is because the novel is about something that's missing, and gradually it becomes clear that it's the letter E that is missing, and 
you know, there are hints through the novel uh, in this. There's a there's an encyclopedia with 26 volumes, except volume five is missing. So there are clues. So the novel is about the disappearance of something which it itself is not there in the novel. So that's extremely clever yeah. and and well done. And there's all sorts of hints and sort of the theme of loss, which is there. And Perec, of course, his own name doesn't you couldn't write without the letter E. Yeah, four 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 E's in George Perec. Yeah. Tough. Exactly. It's so, you know, um, you can't write the words for mother and father or son. So all of these things you cannot write in French without the letter E. And so there, it's it's a lot that's going on in the novel beyond just like, oh, aren't I clever? I can do yeah. this. So and for me, that's what's so important. You know, you can artifice is one thing, but what the sort of books and novels and poetry that that is most interesting that uses mathematics is ones where it does so for a reason that it helps and enhances what's going on. And so, yeah, this novel, <laughs> if you are the translator now of this novel, you've got, right, you can't use the letter E, you've got to translate it into English, but you already have got the story <laughs> that you have to use. Yes. You know, there's no, it, it just is uh, incalculably challenging to try and do that um, and to preserve the story, to preserve the spirit of what is going on. And yeah, I mean, what, what an achievement <laughs> to do that. Enormous thanks to Professor Hart for dropping by. Her book, Once Upon a Prime, is out now. You can get it in the UK, in the US. Go check it out. And now coming up, another conversation about something I'm really interested in with Professor Erica Williams, Professor of English and Africana Studies at UConn. She wrote the new introduction, a new introduction, to the complete fiction of Nella Larson out now. And we're going to talk about Nella Larson and what she means, why you might care about Nella Larson, a little edutainment for you. So stay tuned right after the uh, break. You mentioned at the end of your introduction, so just so everyone knows, this is the complete fiction of Nella Larson, a new edition from the Everyman's Library. Professor Williams joins us today to talk about Nella Larson. And I guess for those of you who don't know Nella Larson, a figure of the Harlem Renaissance, Passing, I think for me, is the most recommendable Harlem Renaissance text anymore. It's relatively short. It's really readable. Like there's a lot of juice to it. It has a really a couple of remarkable scenes. Um and and as Professor Williams says in her introduction, there seems to be a little bit of an upswell in interest in Larson's work. I don't have a good reason for that. I've always been a fan. Do you have a sense of why Larson now? If not ever, why now? That's a really great question. Uh, I think that a couple of things are happening. One, I think, is that there are a few other people who've become really interested in the work wow. and are simply putting it out there and making it more available. So every couple of years, for example, there's another edited collection of Larson's mm -hmm. work, often done with a new introduction. And I think that has the power to start new pools of readership, right? In colleges and universities, I've been teaching Nell Larson for probably 15 years now. And I find that in the last few years, students are more likely to know who she is actually than oh, they were before. So I think that's one thing. It's just Ace Davis has an introduction and now Britt Bennett, who wrote the best-selling novel, The Vanishing Half, has an introduction. Mm -hmm. and they just keep coming out with new introductions to, to her work, to the novels in particular. So that's spreading the word about her and making a few more people more likely to know who she is. So I think that's one thing. But then I think the other thing has to do with the way that Larson wrote about passing, that whole yeah. phenomenon of racial, but, but also other kinds of passing, pretending to be either who you're not or just pushing the complex kind of route to who you are, right? mm -hmm. choosing to 
only show certain parts of your identity for reasons of safety and protection. And I think people are continually fascinated by that phenomenon. And so this kind of taps into that, like, what are the ways in which people still recognize the kind of prevalence of passing and the kind of secrecy and complexity and sometimes self-deception that attaches itself to that? Yeah, I think the complexity is what struck me. I was reading Passing and Quicksand again over the weekend to prepare for this. And the thing that struck me about both of them, and then reading and reminding myself of Larson's biography, is like a deeply complicated person. And I think it shows up in her biography and in the stories. And I think there's an appetite for that as well, right? She's not comfortable with kind of anything. She's fully alive to the complexities and contradictions. And so they're different now, but some so many of them still feel really resonant, right? This question of, are you white? Are you black? Are you in the middle? Are you both? It's remarkable how it feels contemporary in that kind of Yes, absolutely. I think that's really true. And that's particularly in, in the case for Rebecca Hall, the director who decided to to adapt passing into a film, had her own kind of passing story of growing up, as she says, being read as a quote, English rose, and then having this complex family history through her mother of being mm-hmm. um, partly of, of African descent, and having inherited her own mother's kind of passing story. So she was really fascinated with that work. And I think that, yeah, that does resonate with lots of people people who are multiracial and who go through life with people asking, what are you? Trying to pinpoint them and figure out who they are. People who have family secrets of all kinds. People who are struggling with their gender identity and their sexuality and feeling as if they have to hide and wondering how much they can reveal of the, again, the complexity of who they are, all of the complex ways that they've been shaped. So I think for a lot of people, actually, they can really relate. And I find this in the classroom as well, that even if students haven't read anything about racial passing before, don't have any stories about passing along cultural lines in their own families. They can relate to this fear of what if I'm not understood? What if I'm reduced to one thing or the other and not really seen for the fullness of who I am? And how do I navigate that as I walk through the world, try to relate to other people? And they're not, and you're not going to find quote unquote answers in Larsa. This is the way to be. This is, I've got it all figured out. And if you just do X, Y, or Z in her own life in, or in the fiction, I don't want to give it away, but it doesn't go great for people who even have the self awareness of their self awareness, right? Because her characters aren't oblivious to their tornness or mixedness or in betweenness. They're fully alive to it. Doesn't pay a lot of dividends for these characters, honestly. It really doesn't. Yes. I think that's one of the reasons, not that I'm surprised that it's, emergently interesting. And it goes through waves, right? Because I think Quicksand was out of print and through the 70s. And so that there was that moment in the 70s where their eyes came back into print through Robert Hemingway's work and that. And I think Larson came along with that. But that also was kind of like you were saying with Britt Bennett in the current moment, there was an upswelling in Black women's fiction in the 70s that sort of brought some of these things back. I don't want to do the thing of making it about her life, but she also wrote about her life. So I'm not exactly sure where to put her into her books and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. So I think she's definitely her own stories in her books. She grew up multiracial of a white Danish mother and a black father was from the Danish West Indies. Her father and her mother then split up and her mother remarried a white man. And she was in Chicago in this very segregated area. And the family at one point was in 
a kind of more working class, maybe a slightly mm. less segregated neighborhood, and then found themselves able to, quote unquote, move on up into a more segregated space. And she was effectively pushed out of the home, right? Because she was the only one who marked the family as being of color, right? So she carried that with her for a really long time. I think she was, it was very painful for her, even though the life that she had after that, that her mother saw to it that she had was one of an educated Black woman. So she was able to find other Black people who accepted her, was able to carve out a space for herself, first as a nurse, <laughs> then as a writer. But she always carried that pain with her, remained estranged from her mother, had a sister who, until Larson died and left to her inheritance, denied that she even had a sister. So all of that was very painful for her. And she definitely wrote about that, not only in passing, but in quicksand as yeah. well, which is generally to be the more autobiographical yeah. novel where Helga Crane really struggles to find a place where she can be accepted for being both black and white, having working class roots, but now being a kind of mm. striving member of the middle class, being uh, conventional enough not to be thought improper, but also being really a maverick and being very independent. And all of these are things that Larson struggled with in her own life and definitely put into her characters. Her short stories, the first she published under a pseudonym of Alan Semi, so it was a presumably male name and one that wasn't particularly racially marked. And that was Freedom and the Wrong Man. And they both came out in 1926. And then Sanctuary was in 1930. And that actually she published under her name. Yeah. But then that got her embroiled in a big plagiarism scandal. So that was (laughs) quite difficult for her as well. Because her fictional her literary life is five years, right? From like 25, she's writing a little bit. And by 1930, yes. she's done. Yes. And one thing I've never been able to parse, and I don't know if it's even parsable, is her own relationship to her career, to Harlem Renaissance writ large. Carl Van Vechten was instrumental in publishing her and tried to keep in touch with her through the rest of their life. And I yes. think standoffish feels too weak, but I don't know what the right word is for a real ambivalence about her writing career. The plagiarism scandals didn't help, but it felt like she even had a lifeline after that if she wanted to continue. What would you say about mm-hmm. how she, her own relationship to her writing and career in the literary community? Yeah, I think that's a really important and very debated question with Larson, right? And that's partly to do with the fact that like many writers in the Harlem Renaissance, she fell into it, right? In yeah. part because there was this well of interest in Black writing and in and in Black culture. She started out training as a nurse, then she decided to go and become a librarian, became one of the first Black women to be trained at Columbia's uh, library school. And she fell into writing because of her love of books and her work in the library, and also because that allowed her to connect to other artists and writers of the Renaissance movement. So I think that she was just really gung-ho in the beginning, found, finding this new career for herself, this new way to express herself, felt very at home with mm. both Black and white avant-garde artists. And yet, I think one of the complexities was that she always had this little bit of skepticism about identity politics, right? Yeah. The goals of the Renaissance in really highlighting a Black aesthetic, in in trying to put forth a good, positive representations as an obvious counter-narrative to all the negative representations, and also to the incomplete representations that even writers like Carl Van Vechten, whom Larson yeah. adored, one of her best friends, but she also took little shots at him from yeah. that time yeah. again saying that he hadn't quite gotten it right. And so she wanted to step in and do that. So I think she was really enthusiastic, but I think she had personal problems, divorce, Mm -hmm. she had this plagiarism scandal. She again had the sense that 
if she was wanting to be an artist in a kind of freeing sense and maybe felt a little bit hemmed in yeah. by some of the politics of the elder members of the Renaissance, folks like Du Bois and Alain Locke. And so I think all of those things came together. And then, of course, the depression hit, right? Yeah. And, and some of the interest in the Harlem Renaissance writers was waning as well. That was also difficult. I think some writers managed after that to cross over into that post-Renaissance world, Hughes and Hurston among them. But I think for Larson, that was also a major factor. And I think she started to lose confidence, right, mm -hmm. for some sort of complex set of reasons. Because she continued writing. She was working on a couple of novels. She went abroad and worked, but she never could quite get it back together. And so whether it's you know, her personal life, the somewhat disappearing outlets also yeah. in that sense of disappearing support, and then the plagiarism scandal. And that was really hard because she was exonerated. But as we know, once you're talked about, right? <laughs> Especially if you're a Black woman in 1930, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. For those of, for someone who hasn't come to Larson before, what are they in for on the sentence level, on the reading level? Like, what should they expect if they pick up her Larson for the first time? Uh, to be just really fascinated, I think. First of all, she is a wonderful writer and that she really knows how to tell a story. Yes. And I think how to create intrigue in ways that are really interesting. But also, even though she's a great writer and it creates these sort of vivid images, it's not super literary with a capital L. It's not something that you have to keep a dictionary nearby. Right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah to figure out what exactly she's saying, maybe a few 1920s words that we don't use anymore. But she really has a very readable style. You're going to find someone who's extremely interested in not only race, but gender, and in how gender and race and class kind of intersect to really make things complicated for her heroines. And in fact, in those first two short stories that she published pseudonymously, she she didn't wasn't writing about Black characters. Yeah. She didn't see these characters. And so there are really stories about Women on the one hand, and the struggles of a woman, one in particular, telling her her checkered past with her current kind of marriage to an upstanding man. And then also about the limits of domesticity yeah. and the problems of love, romantic love as some sort of overwhelming, safe, fulfilling institution. So she's very critical, I think, not just of racism and the complexities of kind of identity politics as a kind of response to anti-Black racism, but also to gender and to all of these kinds of mores and narratives that we circulate and tell ourselves. She's really interested in blowing the lid off of a lot of the myths that we tell ourselves, right, about domestic life and about relationships with others. She's so skeptical innately or, or whatever, innately or learned experience, both and maybe, of any narrative or supposition of a place of safety or security, whether Absolutely. it's in the home, at work, in this race or that race or this gender role, that gender role. She takes a shot at every, she's every, at every moment. She's like, that. nope, that ain't it. That's not it. That's not it. And she kind of shovels all around her feet and there's nothing left to stand on by the end. I guess quicksand, the title there is indicative, right? Of like feeling stuck because there's nowhere else to go. She's skeptical of, of all of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Passing has become, I think, the signal work. It's the one that's usually, it's in the anthology of American literature. You can assign it to an undergraduate class. Is there any reason to to dethrone it as the signal, Larson? I don't think so. I often try to teach passing and quicksand together because I think that can be really useful as well. But passing is her second novel. For most authors, the second novel is better That's than right. the first. And that's 
True of Larson. It's a more tightly did and plotted novel. It's got, again, that sense of intrigue that's really fascinating. And in, in many ways, I think it's extending some of what she did in Quicksand. Yeah. But I also love teaching Quicksand too, because it is very obviously, for many of us, a story of a kind of failed artist. Yeah. And also because it does reflect a lot of her own kind of biographical story. So teaching them together, again, they're fairly short. You can actually quite easily you teach can. them together. And they were often published um, together, that, passing in quicksand. Like you, you can yes. get a you get yep. an expensive paperback and a lot of times of passing in quicksand together and read Absolutely. That. Yeah. Still and just bring them together and see how she shifted her focus. And in many ways, I think one of the things we see more clearly in passing than in quicksand is that the specter of racism is there, but it's the impact of racism on the sort of intimate threads of the black community that matters the most. Right? Yeah. So there's not this kind of looming kind of white figure. There's a little more of that in quicksand with stuck and how can she find a job and where is she going to go? But in passing, we very much see that this is an intra-cultural drama, right? The real, yes, there's Claire's white husband and he's extremely racist, but the real drama is between the two women, right? Mm -hmm. Members of the black community and how they differ in their relationship to their racial identities. The other thing about passing too, it has two or three riveting scenes of like unbelievable tension. And I think that does yes. a lot, just from a readerly point of view, for those of you wondering, the setup is there's a couple of characters who, okay, they meet randomly in Chicago. I don't know how randomly, it feels like an awful big coincidence a couple of times here, whatever, such is life. And one of them is passing and one of them could. And they stumble together on a hot day in Chicago on the rooftop. Is the Drayton a hotel? I can, is it, it must be a hotel. I don't think they ever say directly, yes. but they meet and they're both passing in, the, in a white space that they quote unquote shouldn't be in. And the main character, Irene, is watching everyone and she notices herself being watched by this person and say, why is she watching me so hard? And you can read the whole book as people watching each other and who is who and what they're doing. And that scene is a banger. There's another scene when they're in another space with people who have various knowledges of who's passing, who's not. It has a it, it has a tension of people sitting in rooms that you don't get very often of people just sitting in rooms because of the racial yeah. dynamics. And I don't want to spoil it because I don't know what to do with the ending. I think most people don't. And it okay. makes for 30 yeah. minutes of unbelievable classroom discussion, I would imagine, the ending. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Larson was sometimes criticized for the endings of her novels. And I think that's actually something that happens to a lot of women authors of that time period, yeah. late 19th century, Kate Chopin and others was like, oh, we don't like these endings. And But I think it's just so realistic, right? That right. going back to what you said before, there's no refuge, there's no safe space. Even self-knowledge and awareness aren't necessarily going to save you. It doesn't mean they're not worthwhile. So I think there's some self-knowledge at the end of the text that happens, but it can't really... Yeah. It can't really ward off the tragedy, ultimately. And I think that is a contemporary idea of no matter what work you do on yourself, you're still subject to the world at large. You still are within this larger superstructure. And it's the dream of liberal education, right? That if you read and do the work and you're educated in whatever, you can, I don't know, carve out a safety, space of safety or freedom. And this is a critique. And there's an implicit critique of this. It's like, wait a minute. There's still you're still subject to everything else. The systems and structures are still out there. I think that's I think that's really true. The systems and the structures are still limited. Going back to why Larson may not have continued to write. Yeah. It was 
again, as the depression hit and people weren't necessarily interested in reading novels by up and coming black writers, it was a financial issue, right? She's going to keep herself going. And certainly she could do that really well as a nurse and then later a nurse supervisor. So those material circumstances are really important. But there's also the internal, that ongoing fear that Larson had of attaching to people of trusting in people, that also continued to haunt her, I think. And I think that's also something that a lot of people can relate to, right? That right. even if you've got the material stuff taken care of, those fears, those insecurities, it's not that easy to just push those aside. That's Professor Erica Williams, thanks to her. The new complete fiction of Nella Larson is out now. Go find it with her introduction. Thanks so much to Sarah Hart, to Professor Erica Williams, to Vanessa Diaz, to Kelly Jensen. This episode was also produced in part by Caitlin Braham here at Book Riot. You can find the links to the books and articles and everything we talked about in the show notes. You can also follow First Edition on Twitter and on Instagram. If you'd like to keep up, I'm going to put some stuff relevant to the show here that maybe didn't make it or just kind of compliments it. Also, a Substack you can check out. Link in the show notes for all of this stuff. I'm going to just keep saying that. And that Substack, I'm going to be doing a little behind the scenes for each episode on the weeks that a show is coming out. Then the, every Friday... I'm resurrecting an old format I used to do called Critical Linking. I look at a bunch of links every week. There's all kinds of stuff going on in the bookless world. I'm going to pick 10 that I'm going to round up. I maybe have a comment, a little analysis, but an easy way to keep up with the most interesting stuff going in the world of books. So that's the Substack. And if you have a moment to write back with some feedback, first edition at bookriot.com. I've gotten lots of nice emails, some really helpful suggestions. I really want to hear what people think. Still kind of figuring out what to do with all of this time and attention and energy that's going into the show. And lastly, if you have a minute with your coffee, maybe you're done scrolling Instagram, go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the show. It really does help people find the show. I know it goes into this big pot of whatever, but it really does help. Something simple. I really appreciate if you could do that. Until next time, read something great.